Hello and welcome to Obsession, where we get horribly obsessed, highly obsessed, <laughs> hilariously obsessed with things that other people might find odd. Nothing is too obscure, too creepy or too weird for us to research obsessively. I'm Heidi. And I'm Rebecca. Join us in being obsessed. <laughs> Hello, obsessives. Hello, Heidi. You're listening to music, hey? Quotation yeah. music. Who are you listening to, Heidi? What? <laughs> oh, that's pretty. That's beautiful, isn't it? Pretty. Who are you listening to, Heidi? I'm listening to the woman that we're going to be talking about today. Yeah, you are indeed. Now, this lady is someone we have usually our obsessions we actually share at the same time and yes. we'll sit there and we'll swap information. This happens to be one when Heidi suggested to me that we do it as a podcast. I went, hey, hi, obsessed about her last year. So we've both obsessed about this one separately and it's a good one. Oh, it is a good one. Yes. Who is it, Heidi? It is. Florence Foster Jenkins. Yay, Florence, Yay. The, the infamous soprano. Yeah. See, I like so it. That was her. <laughs> <laughs> so tell us about Florence, Heidi. All right. So Florence Foster Jenkins, as you just heard, was a singer. Uh-huh. You're very generous. Of sorts. Of sorts. Of sorts. Of sorts, yes. She was a self-proclaimed singer. She was a self-proclaimed singer and she did have an audience. A big one. A big audience. And yes. still does, by the way. And still does. That's right. <laughs> so who was she? So Nasina Florence Foster was born in 1868 in Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania, to a very wealthy, conservative family. Florence showed near prodigious talent on the piano and gave concerts from a very early age under the name Little Miss Foster. Isn't that cute? That's very cute. Very cute. And she probably was quite cute at that time too. She probably was, and um, she was exceptionally good. Apparently so, yeah. Yeah, and, and she even ended up performing at the White House mm. at some stage. I know. So, I actually only found that out this morning. I couldn't find anything more about that, but yeah, she must have been okay then. Yeah, so while there was no doubt that she was an amazingly good musician, her parents refused to give her singing lessons seeing no point in encouraging something that she would never be very good at. Her father actually called it her misguided notions. Yes, and and fathers in those days were very strict, weren't they? Becky? Yeah, we seem to have that pattern with a lot of the women we talk about in our podcast, Heidi. 
Yeah. We have another Mr. Banks type here, I think. Yeah, we do. But you know what? In this case, I I think (laughs) think he was showing some good sense. (laughs) I did think that when he said about the misguided notions, I thought, He's just trying to guide her, you know, hello, dear. Let's, um, can we be a bit more practical here, a bit more sensible? <laughs> I think he was possibly the only person ever in her life who actually tried to, you know, tell the truth, maybe. Maybe he was the only person who wasn't an enabler. Yeah. Oh, that, you, we got a title this episode, <laughs> Enablers, because the that enablers. Is, that's good, Heidi. Oh, my gosh. Now, look, he was, let's let's be honest, though, he was a very stern, very controlling man. He was. And Florence nurtured dreams of studying piano in Europe, but her father decided that she should have a more traditional wife as befitted a respectable society woman. Alas, as women had to go then. Alas. Alas, so Florence was absolutely heartbroken. Mm. And in what was probably an act of spite towards her father, she eloped with a man 16 years her senior, Frank Thornton Jenkins. And she was quite young. I think she was only 16, 17. Yeah, she was only about 17. Yeah, so Mm. the age differential there, you know, the younger you are, yeah. Uh, the bigger the age gap. You, you know that theory? Oh, yes. Um, for her to be 16 and him to be 32, that was quite a big age. It was. And the family didn't like him. So, of course, people were very, very unhappy about this. Uh, the marriage didn't last too long, though, because mm-hmm. old Frank Thornton Jenkins, mm-hmm. he gave Florence the gift that keeps on giving. Yeah. Syphilis. Yeah, he did. And which is pretty tragic. It is. She was so young. So young. And, you know, the treatments for syphilis back then were pretty brutal. They were. They you were. Know, you have to say that maybe her father was a bit right in not wanting her to marry him. Yes, probably. Mm. Probably. And, yeah, it, it was really unfortunate. And so the, these treatments, um, they involved mercury and also arsenic. Oh, I didn't know about arsenic. I knew about mercury. Yeah. Oh, God. Yeah, and they had some quite brutal side effects. Mm. And these side effects may have been what shaped Florence's life. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, syphilis was, was actually seen as a pretty big problem, Um Back then, there were these sexual health health pamphlets at the time. They used to have um, really, really catchy phrases like an hour with Venus, a lifetime with Mercury. (laughs) (laughs) Which, I mean, that's not bad for a public service announcement. (laughs) That is really clever. Oh, and it was a lifetime of Mercury for her and with some devastating side effects. It, it certainly did, and her life may not have may not have turned out the way it had without those side effects. Do you think? Interesting. We'll come back to that. Yeah, yeah. Well, we'll come back to that every now and then because I, I, there are some theories about the side effects and about um, oh, and about how they influenced the way that she heard certain things. Really. So, so we'll go back to that. Okay. 
So devastated by the diagnosis, of course, Florence left her husband. Yeah. At first, she tried to make it on her own. She attempted life independently as a music teacher. Mm. But unfortunately, she did have some problems with her hands that may have been uh, the result of, of, of the syphilis or may have been a side effect of the mercury, but she found herself unable to, to play the piano as well as she used to. See, that, that part of the story is quite devastating to me. I it can't is. Not being it's incredibly sad. Yeah. Especially she, her entire life and her entire dreams and everything you know, she held important was around wanting to perform, wanting to be a singer, wanting to, sorry, wanting to be a, a pianist, wanting to be a musician. So, hmm. Yeah, yeah, it, it would have been absolutely horrible. So she couldn't, she couldn't play well enough to teach and she definitely was never going to be a concert performer. Yeah, no. So she turned her ambitions elsewhere and she went home. She got her mother, convinced her mother to go with her to New York and they set their sights on conquering the New York social scene. Leaving dad behind. <laughs> Leaving dad behind. And he's a bit of a grump. We don't need him anyway. Well, he's not an enabler, but I think her mum sort of went, okay, I believe in you, darling. Yes. Yes. I, I think as mums should, as our mums do with obsession. Oh, my goodness. Do you know what? My mum often yeah. says, oh, you know, when you guys get discovered and get a job at the ABC, <laughs> and, and it's not if oh. you guys get discovered, it's when. It's when. When, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I admire her enabling us like that. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, you, you know, I think we might have the common sense to be able to deal with a bit of enabling. Oh, I think so too. <laughs> <laughs> I think so too. I think we're quite pragmatic about um our abilities. <laughs> I think so too. So Florence joined all the best women's clubs and made the most valuable contacts in the local musical and theatrical societies. Yeah, and she she was very much into the whole club scene, wasn't she? As oh. It was then. And then the club scene then was to belong to the um, Daughters of the Revolution or to the Eastern Star. There were so many clubs to join and she joined a lot of them do you know how many Heidi a lot 42 <laughs> at, yes. at one time she belonged to 42 clubs she was and she was the leader of quite a few of them after a while including creating her own the Verdi club the Verdi club the which Verdi is club going yes. to be talked about quite a lot yes so she was a loud and domineering social butterfly and she established herself very much as a leading figure in these communities and her superior musical knowledge went completely unchallenged. And, and the, the, the truth was she did actually have a superior she uh, did. musical knowledge. She may not have had a superior musical talent and yeah. she was also extremely benevolent. Two aspiring artists. Oh, yes. Mm. 
Yes, uh, there were actually a lot of budding opera singers at that time who got their first mm. foot in the door because of these society musicals and society concerts that she would put on in her clubs. Absolutely. And she was really, really good at spotting talent and really good mm. at encouraging talent. Yeah. So, you know, she had that going for her. Whatever else, she, she was really good at spotting talent. She could have been a Simon Cowell of those days <laughs> and had things been different. <laughs> Did you just imagine Simon Cowell but trying to pursue his own singing career as well? Oh, yeah, that's, <laughs> that's pretty much it. Or... You know, if you think of Hyacinth. I was about to say, Heidi, when, so Heidi actually put up on our social media account when I didn't know. And when I saw it, I went, that is it perfectly. You could not epitomise um, Florence better than Hyacinth Bouquet. And if anyone doesn't know who Hyacinth Bouquet is, please watch the classic 1990s British comedy Keeping Up Appearances. It's it, fantastic. It's hysterical. It's hysterical. So she's kind of like a Hyacinth Bouquet, except mm -hmm. unlike Hyacinth, she actually does have money mm. and she does have influence. Yes, she definitely did. Yes, she definitely did. And unlike Hyacinth, she, she was a magnetic person who attracted a lot of friends. Yeah, and I can never figure out why because she was actually quite horrible to them often. <laughs> she was. <laughs> she really was. She was. I'm, I'm obviously not treating you right, Heidi. I need to be a bit meaner to you, I think. Treat them mean, keep them keen. Can I tell a quick story? I don't yes, know if you've got this one in mind, but one of the stories that I've heard about um, Florence is that she had three recordings of herself singing, of two very famous opera singers singing exactly the same passage and she got them all to listen and vote who was the best. And, of course, all of them voted her the best, but one actually voted someone else the best. And apparently she berated them for half an hour. Well, I mean, they must have been bullied into Possibly. being her friends and her enablers. Now, during this time, Florence met her prime enabler. Oh, yeah. The man who would be the most important person in her life, struggling Shakespearean actor, Sinclair Bayfield. I did actually read that he was a really good actor. Well, that's often the case, isn't it? You know, you have people who aren't necessarily born into wealth, who have great talent, but kind yeah. of can't get anywhere with it. Meanwhile, she had money and had <laughs> talent and look what that got us. I know, I know. It seems to be the way of the world sometimes. <laughs> So, that must um, mean, Heidi, that we're very talented. Yes, we're talented <laughs> and, and not so wealthy. That's, That's right. <laughs> the proof that we've got talent. It is, it is. So Sinclair Bayfield, great I name. I know, isn't it, it though? Sinclair Bayfield. Very posh. He actually came from quite a posh background, actually. Yeah, he did, but, but he wasn't rich. No, because he was illegitimate. So, yes, mm. bit, bit sad. sad. Well, he was very handsome, very talented, and for some reason he found Florence absolutely magnetic. I cannot understand that. I'm so sorry, but I can't. 
I know we can't understand it, but it seems that everybody else could. She seemed to just draw people to her. Was it the money drawing them to her, do you think? Uh, do you know what? We'll probably never and know. And see, everyone to this day tries to work out Sinclair's relationship with, with her. Was it a romantic thing? Was it a money thing? Was it a power thing? What do you think? I don't know. I think it was an extremely codependent mm-hmm. relationship, whatever it was. Yeah. I mean, they needed each other a lot. They did, didn't they? And do you know what? I think it was kind of a romantic friendship, if that makes sense. Yeah, it sense. does. And do you think they consummated their relationship? I don't know. And, look, we'll never know. But, um, you know, she was suffering from syphilis, even though it was in treatment. And I don't know if she would have been particularly confident about not passing it on. I don't know. See, I actually did wonder a few times if he was a homosexual, but he had another relationship at a certain point in parallel to the relationship with um, uh, Florence. And she was also a very dominant personality as well. I often wonder if it was a bit of a, you know, like the dominant mother types. Well, I mean, Kathleen, Kathleen, she was an English woman that he did. He did have a long term relationship with while he was um, in a common law marriage with Florence. And after Florence's death, he did marry Kathleen. So I don't know, maybe Kathleen was the love of his life and maybe Florence was the person he depended on for other things. Maybe. Who knows? I really do genuinely think he cared for Florence deeply. I think so too. I think so. I I would even go so far as to say I don't think anyone ever understood Florence or cared for Florence as much as Sinclair. I would agree with that. Yeah. Um, I mean, look, he did so much for her. He was her manager. He was the producer of her many theatrical productions and she put on a lot of those (laughs) she couldn't have done any of that without him no and she he was he was her most loyal supporter he was the organizer of her social life and in return she paid for his accommodation pretty accommodation accommodation, actually and she was living in a fancy hotel room and mm. he was kept there, and I can never quite figure that bit out. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, maybe there was a stigma uh, with women and kept men. I don't know. They were common law but married. Yeah, I yeah yeah they were. I I don't know. She she had her sumptuous surroundings. He lived in very very ordinary accommodation. So. Uh, Florence may have known about uh, Sinclair's relationship with Kathleen, but to be honest, I think she was turning a blind eye to it. I think she needed him so much as her manager that she just let it happen. That plays into your um, co-dependent theory too. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. Absolutely. So at this time... Florence was busy establishing herself as a singer. 
<laughs> Sorry, but whenever you say that with a straight yeah. face, I can't help but laugh. I know, <laughs> I know. So she took singing lessons from secret teachers and they were usually the ones who encouraged the secrecy. I can't think Strangely why. enough. <laughs> because a lot of them were really, really um, powerful and top class uh, performers themselves. They were. They were. She could afford the best teachers. Oh, yeah. And uh, the teachers didn't necessarily want to be associated with her. Can't think why. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and Florence began to give recitals at her women's clubs. Encouraged by the positive responses of her friends. Oh, God. <laughs> I'm sorry. Florence hired such venues as the Ritz-Carlton. Yeah. Wouldn't that be great to just be able to say, I want to put on a concert. Mm-hmm. I've been taking some singing lessons. Let's hire the Ritz-Carlton. That's what money buys you, Heidi. Wouldn't that be great? Just think, Heidi, you could hire out the Louvre, invite all your friends and then call yourself a very famous artist. Not that I'm saying you're a bad artist like she is. Sorry. <laughs> Oops. Careful. You... Yeah, no, that's not what I meant. Oh, God. But you know what? People do that. I know. I know. Money buys everything. It really does. So her concerts at this stage were invitation only (laughs) and reviews were written by friends. And these reviews were quite entertaining because they were incredibly positive but they very rarely mention Florence's voice. No, they? they always mention how absolutely magnificent her gowns were or how how enthusiastic the crowd were. They never actually say, and she sung beautifully. No, no. And there's one, there's one really telling review where they're talking about the flowers. <laughs> they're talking about all the flowers on the stage <laughs> and how lovely they are. I'm trying to think now, does our mothers ever say to us anything about our podcast and say things like, oh, the phone was very, you know, um, well charged that day when I listened to your podcast. <laughs> and, oh, wasn't the weather lovely? Or aren't you too charming? <laughs> well, 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 we'll have to listen carefully. We'll have to listen to what they don't say. Yeah, I know. I think it, <laughs> yes. <laughs> Something Florence did not do. Yeah, absolutely. And look, to be fair to Florence, this wasn't just a big ego-stroking session for her. She did do some good things during these recitals. She gave some opportunities to people with actual talent. Oh, absolutely. She started quite a few careers. She did. And she gave some singers and musicians their first foot in the door. And some of them credited her with being the person who who gave them their first audience. So, I mean, there's that. She she could have done all that without actually, you know, performing herself. The ego. Even if she was good. (laughs) Even if she was a good singer, that's still very egotistical and, you know, creating your own club and you being the star performer. Yes, but do you know what? Most of Florence's activities did revolve around her need for attention. Yeah, definite narcissist there. Look, she introduced a trend to her clubs 
And um, it was called uh, Tableau Vivant. I don't know if you know what this is. No. It, it was a hobby that rich people had um, back then. Yeah. So basically uh, they would create these amazing uh, stage sets, these dioramas, life-size dioramas, and uh, these people would be positioned inside <laughs> the diorama in gorgeous costumes oh and they would be uh say basically still reenactments of um classic literature oh or mythology or history and you know you'd have a society lady dressed up as say Joan of Arc or something and oh God. and it was a tableau it a was, revolving it was just still it was. And people would just look at these people posing. That's it. They were posing. Can That's you imagine, all they were doing. Can you imagine anything worse to go to? Well, if you were in it, it would probably be exciting. No. You know? <laughs> <laughs> no. Because, you know, they put a lot of effort into it. They were quite beautiful. They were they created some really beautiful, beautiful scenes. But yeah, it was it was an ego echo chamber. Yeah. Yeah. And these uh tableau vivants always ended with Florence as the star <laughs> of the most magnificent scene. And she'd often be an angel or a great woman from history. She loved being an angel. And she often wore her angel costume on stage. She spent a lot of money on her costumes. A oh, lot of yes. money. Like, like $500 a costume. Which is like the price of a house back then. Yeah, yeah. It was, it was crazy. And a lot of this would have happened during the Depression too, wouldn't it? Yeah, yeah. it would have. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, this was really self-indulgent. Yeah. In a big way. Yeah. So I think these people could have gotten together and knitted, you know, socks for the soldiers, but no, they decided <laughs> to make these little ego vignettes of themselves. They and did. you know that she actually uh, commissioned a statue of herself, don't you? She did. She did. <laughs> have you well, ever considered getting a statue made of your likeness, Heidi? Well, I'd make one myself. Oh, you do too. Do you want me to make one of you? I don't know. Can you make me thinner in it? Yeah. Okay, sure. then. You're the boss. Cool. <laughs> but, but to be fair to Florence, I, I have read that she did give a lot of charitable donations and um, do a lot of really good things for the war effort. Oh, so, right. you know, you know, maybe. She's allowed to have a little break where she gets let... to sit <laughs> Just still. Just to be fair. So let's give everyone a bit of a listen to Florence. <laughs> Get ready, guys.
that was beautiful, wasn't it? Pretty. Really nice. Very pretty. Although I have to tell you, not being a fan of opera myself, I actually can't tell much of the difference. They're both annoying. (laughs) That's terrible, Becky. I have to – do you know what I need to do? Mm. I need to introduce you to some opera that you like. No. No? No. Just never? Never. Never, never, never. Heidi, do you not remember very early on in our friendship – Yes. That we were involved in a particularly nasty, vicious game online. Yeah, we were. That's, oh, my God, that's how we bonded. That was how we bonded. Do you want to tell our listeners? Yes. Okay, so we had this game where we would send each other YouTube links of the worst music videos we could find. And, oh, my God, some of the videos we were unearthing, (laughs) they were unbelievable. (laughs) And um, the point of the game was that if you couldn't watch the entire video, then the other person won. That's and it. I won that game because yep. I sent Becky Florence. Yeah, you, you actually used my kryptonite. Not only did you do opera, yeah, which I do believe I actually put a call out saying no one do opera, right? Yeah. Not only did you do opera, you did Florence doing opera. That was pretty low. I I thought I'd been pretty low with, um, what was this, Cliff Richard's Millennium Prayer. Oh, (laughs) I was sure I'd had it won. Oh, no, look, I hated every second of Cliff Richard's Millennium Prayer. But But sometimes bad music can be good. And Florence actually to this day has a bit of a cult following, doesn't she? She has such a cult following. Um. Like her records, for instance, or she she actually brought out one record, but David Bowie used to cite that as one of his favourite all-time records. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah. It's like yeah. me with Mark Wild Man Fisher. Yeah. Do you know what? I don't mind Wild Man Fisher. I either. love him. I listen to him at least once a month. Really? <laughs> yeah. So sometimes bad music can be good. Look, do you know what? I think that bad music can be good in the way that bad movies can be good. Yeah. Oh, yes. And, and incidentally, our name, Obsession, actually came about because I had discovered <laughs> um, I discovered Tommy Wiseau. Yeah. The, the guy who wrote and directed and starred in what's – often called the worst movie of all time, which is The Room. And I had this absolute obsession with The Room and then I got obsessed with other filmmakers like Neil Breen who are famous for being so bad that they're good. Mm -hmm. And that's how the word obsession came into being because I'd say I'm horribly obsessed. (laughs) It it, it came from there. (laughs) But you know what? I think... um, Florence Foster Jenkins was definitely the Tommy Wiseau of her day. I think so. You know, it's like when people go to midnight screenings of The Room and they know all of the lines, you know, they sit there going, you're tearing me apart, Lisa. (laughs) You know, that that's really not that different from people going to see Florence and, and, you know, waiting for that note that they knew she was. (laughs) It's the kind of thing you and I would go to, really. I know. 
I know. And the record that she did produce, which we'll talk about a bit more later, she um, that was actually sort of uh, held under the counters of record shops and was a bit of a yeah. nudge, nudge, wink, wink, can I get that Florence record? And people would <laughs> listen to it. And there was actually one reviewer of the time who said, do yourself a favour for $2.50. It's more of a laugh than you know, and cheaper than marijuana. <laughs> <laughs> And, and it had the most perfect name. It was called The Glory of the Human Voice. <laughs> oh, God. And there was no irony in that title no. at all. She was very serious about her art. She was very serious. And, you know, there is a lot of debate about whether or not she was in on the joke. I don't think so. And, you know, going back to, uh, say, Tommy Wiseau, because for me... Tommy Wiseau is kind of the closest in terms to that level of ego, that level of narcissism. So actually a really good analogy. Yeah. And so, you know, he would, he actually goes to these midnight screenings of his movies. Does he really? He does. And he knows that people are laughing at them. He joins in. He loves the attention But um, his co-star, Greg Sestero, wrote um, a book about the experience of making The Room called The Disaster Artist, which has been made into a movie. I didn't really like the movie that much. But in The Disaster Artist, he says, look, um, he can, Tommy Wiseau can perform the mental gymnastics that enable him to to be in on the joke but at the same time think he's he's the greatest living filmmaker how that's pretty big cognitive dissonance you got going on there it totally is but i mean it's it's kind of like florence for instance would be on stage and uh she'd hear people laughing yeah but she had a reason but she had an excuse for that every time That yeah. was her enemy sending along people to ruin her performance. So I don't know that I think she wasn't even remotely in on the joke, unlike the producer. Really? Yeah, no, I don't. I don't. I think she was so caught up in her own ego. Well, you know the story of Narcissa. But yes. Yeah. So unaware of anything else around. That's how I view her. And incidentally, her first name is really not Florence. It is. Yeah. It is Nassin or Narcissa. Some, Which is from Narcissa. Yeah, yeah, I know. And that's that's kind of incredible as well, isn't I it? I know. <laughs> I think people have got to be really careful about what they name their children. <laughs> you reckon they do? I do. I do because I think if people give their children names that are from mythology or right. from literature, they kind of become like that. Okay, so does that mean that you actually sort of walk up great big mountains yodeling Heidi look I love mountains (laughs) I love animals and me some strange dark figure from the 1930s you know who drowns in a boat off the shore of England well that seems right to me I have no (laughs) argument with that do you know what it kind of does doesn't it yeah it does you know there's me baby goats snowflakes Mm. It, it works it really does work Ah. Yeah. Now, Florence loved costumes as much as she loved music. 
She wore the most outlandish costumes you can think of. She had she had a shepherdess costume. She had a Spanish flamenco dancer costume. She, um, you know, had a queen of the night costume. And the stage was generally decorated with potted plants and everything looked gorgeous. And it was just um, a visual spectacular. Basically. Go back to the hyacinth um, yes. hay analogy. Can you imagine how insufferable she would have been in the lead up to one of these performances? <gasps> like Bridezilla, the only performance zilla. You will go to my soiree. Well, there's a story there, Heidi. Yes. Well, um, there was a friend of hers who remembered that uh, Florence asked her to lunch. They went to a beautiful hotel. And the second they set, sat down, Florence took out a book of tickets to her show <laughs> and said, I'll put you down for four, shall I? Oh, God. Oh, so, you're very, very hyacinth bouquet. Yeah. Yeah. And why and was she... anyone her friend? Oh, God. I, do you know what? I don't know. I really don't know. And one of her favourite things to do on stage was to carry a basket of flowers and she would throw roses into the audience as she sang. And um, if she received an encore, which she always did. Funny that. Yeah, which she always did. Her accompanist had to go back into the audience and pick all of the flowers back <laughs> up and put them back in her basket so she could throw them again. Can't you just imagine the visual of that? <laughs> it would have it would have been hilarious. Ridiculous. And talking about and talking about accompanists. She had um, this wonderful accompanist at this time who had the best name that anyone mm. could ever have, Cosme McMoon. It is cool, isn't it? It is really, really cool. And uh, Cosme McMoon was actually a really good musician and he was one of her prime enablers. And um, it is reported that he thought that he was going to be in her will. Yeah. And that he thought that he was going to be left enough money to start a music school. Well, he also got at the same time that he was in a relationship with her as well. He did. Mm. But we, we don't know. We Who don't know. Knows? It's all very tangled. Yeah. But he was quite a character, Mr. McMoon. I do like him. He became a boxer after after it was clear that that he had no future in music. Did he really? After, after working with her for so long, he became a boxer. So <laughs> that's that's really interesting. You can hmm. draw something from that. You could. You could. So um, Florence's mother had died in 1928. Both her, both of her parents had died by then, uh, leaving her with enough money to fully indulge her career. And, and indulge she did. Oh, yes. And to hire the best venues and the best supporting artists. Now, at this point, the audience still was made up of society people 
and they would shove handkerchiefs in their mouths uh, so that no, so that she couldn't hear them laughing. And then at the end of the aria, they would burst into huge applause so that she wouldn't hear them roaring with laughter. So this is where you come into confirmation bias. Like with yeah. the reviews, she wouldn't have the subtlety to realise that it hadn't actually mentioned any talent that she had. No. And the same with the applause from the audience. That would have overwhelmed any other potential even remote doubt that she possibly may have had, and I don't think she did. Yeah. I think she was 100% confident that she was just a genius. And, I mean, do you think there could have been uh, some kind of physiological reason for that as well? Yeah. They have actually mentioned that perhaps because of the syphilis Mm. that she had hearing loss, but um, I don't think so. She was so arrogant and so horrible. But, I mean, it could be a combination of both. It could be could be overwhelming ego and hearing loss. Mm, I think you're kinder than... Um... Yeah. Well, I mean, Mercury does do that. Yes, but how can you not differentiate between, like, three recordings? She, she got to hear herself. I mean, if, if, yeah. you, if all she had to go on was hearing herself sing while she's performing, that's one thing because I don't know about you, but when I'm singing in the shower, I am a diva, I can tell you. Yeah. If anyone was to record me, I would be horrified because (laughs) I would sound really bad. Do you know what I mean? We all think we sound good when we're singing. Um, But she got to hear a recording of herself and she did. She marked off on, yep, I sound great. That's perfect. Let's go. And, I mean, singing was not... uh, where her delusions ended either because she used to get Cosme to set her poetry to music (laughs) and she did she did have a particular poem called the bird like a bird (laughs) and uh that was a favorite and uh she would she would trot out like a bird at every show so let's trot it out now love that Becky no I really didn't (laughs) I really really didn't I don't know what's worse the 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 actual uh, melody or the poetry look it's it's both equally bad 
It is. <laughs> and yet so bad it's good. So and, and how does something become so bad it's good? I don't know. It's got you to be pretty genuine. You can't fake it. Yeah. Yeah, I was about to say, I think that the difference between bad and so bad it's good is that the people making so bad it's good have a genuine love. Yeah, authenticity, passion, yeah. and you've got to say that for Florence. She definitely had all that. She did. And she worked yes. very, very hard. She worked hard. She loved it. She loved the music. She had a true appreciation of the music. Did you ever hear the story about her having an accent? I don't know how true this is, but apparently yes. she had an accent in a taxi. Yes. <laughs> let out a shriek. Yes. And even though she was really shaken from it, she ran up the stairs and sort of played it on the uh, piano and went, oh, look, I've discovered another note. It's a higher C, a higher F. Let's see, a higher yeah. F. And she sent the taxi driver a box of cigars. She did. So there you go. That's so funny. He gained. I mean, I mean, she was irrepressible. Mm. I mean, you know, you've got to admire that spirit, don't you? I actually do. And you know what? You have to also acknowledge that, I mean, she went from being a young girl yeah. whose father, you know, wouldn't permit her to follow her chosen passion um, to truly having a very independent life. I mean, even yes. to not living with a man, uh, having a very independent life and formidable career and it was a career I mean yeah not as a good musician but she had a, a career in the music industry for sure and she did that all herself with her passion and Look, she knew how to make things happen she did and when she wanted something ooh, she would go after it and she went after a second career as a recording artist <laughs> she wasn't content to be a concert performer she wanted to break into recording. Yeah. So <laughs> she went to Meltone Recording Studios to record her self-funded album, which, as before, we said was called The Glory of the Human Voice. And she was incredibly proud of this record. And at this point, I do have to wonder how even her enablers like Sinclair could have I don't know I mean how did he keep a straight face with all of this did he keep a straight face yeah I reckon he would have and yeah. if nothing else he was you know he was actually quite frightened of her and he was convinced that she was psychic yeah. Yeah. so he would have had a short breakdown if, if he'd inside he'd been laughing at her I don't think he laughed at her I Ever. I think he knew that she wasn't talented, but I don't think he found her yeah. comical. I don't think. Yeah. yeah he cared too much Maybe for her he was... Yeah, and he, and he tried to shield her from a lot yes. of the mockery too and would try to, you know, he went, he enabled her greatly when it was like the group of friends, but when it went further than that, he actually tried to prevent a lot of the stuff from happening. Yeah, he did. He did. It's a bit of all right. And, um, yeah, yeah. And, and look, there was one great venue that Florence still had not performed in. Mm, the epitome of venue. Yes. Carnegie Hall. Becky, 
Yeah. How do you get to Carnegie Hall? I don't know. Practice. <laughs> well, she did a lot That's... of that. Well, that was my dad joke for this week. <laughs> yeah. You can relax now. My dad joke is finished. It's done now. <laughs> it's done now. It's done now. It's gone. It's gone. <laughs> she did so... practice. She really did practice. But yeah. you've got to have a little bit of talent in that as well, don't you? Just a little bit. But, but, I mean, she was able to hire Carnegie Hall. Do you know, I'm going to tell you a quick story about me, and that okay. is that I studied classical guitar from about the age of eight, I think, right through to about 18, and I took it very seriously and I worked really hard. And my theory was that when I could play the same pieces that my heroes like John Williams and Julian Breen could play, that I too would sound like them. And, of course, I got up to a level of accomplishment where I could play those pieces of music and sadly discovered that it's not only the ability to play something that you need, it's actually some talent as well. Yeah, but it's kind of hard when you're a child with talent because nobody really knows how that's going to turn out. Well, see, I think her childhood had a very large bearing on her adulthood because she would have got an author. I mean, she played at the White House, as you mentioned. Yeah. She performed a lot. Her entire identity would have been built around being a performer and the approbation she got for and that. Be- and being a former prodigy as well. Yeah, yeah. So she wasn't just talented at the piano, she was considered extraordinary. Yeah, and I always think it's a bit sad that she couldn't uh, pursue pa- piano. Yeah. I think the rest of the world probably thought it was a bit unfortunate too. Um, yeah. But I have to give her credit. She still managed to pursue musical passion regardless, you know. She kept pushing on there. She found a way. She found a way. She was persistent. <laughs> Nevertheless, she persisted. Nevertheless, she persisted. That's right. Now, you would think that this show would be a massive flop, wouldn't you? <laughs> but no, Becky, the show was completely booked out. In hours. With, within two hours. Yeah. And what's more, there were at least a 1,000 people outside trying to scalp tickets to get inside because she had become so infamous in the cult uh, underground kind of scene um, with that record that everyone wants to go and laugh at her, basically. And that was the problem because before that she'd only sung to her friends, she'd only sung to other society people, other club people, but now she mm. was going to have an audience full of people from all walks of life and real critics. No longer in her sheltered little world. So she did put on this show on October the 25th 1944 and she brought out all her usual tricks she had her extraordinary costumes she had her stage set she had Cosme McMoon she had some really good support acts 
she dressed as a shepherdess, as an angel. She had her basket of flowers. And she was, in a way, kind of a hit. <laughs> Maybe not in the way she expected. No, no. And, you know, I have some empathy for her at this point. I mean, I've, I've pretty much disliked her her entire life. Yeah. And we're talking about a 76-year-old woman. 76, I think? Yes. 76-year-old woman. And, oh, it was, it's very painful to know that at this late stage of her life she had such a reckoning. Look, even really good singers um, have their voices fail as they age. Oh, yeah. You know, and, and even hearing um, a wonderful singer and, and hearing them on stage, having their voice fail, that's, that's a mortifying experience. Oh, yes, it is. Yes, it is. But the audience wasn't mortified. The, the audience had a great time. They did have a good time at her expense. Yes. And the thing is she didn't react as though she could hear the laughter. And when she didn't react to it, it was almost like she was in on the joke and people felt free to laugh. Yeah. And there were quite a lot of celebrities in the audience. Cole Porter went. Yep. And uh, the opera singer Lily Pons. Mm. And the actress Tallulah Bankhead actually actually had to be escorted out. That was her. Because she was hysterical. I knew that a woman had to be taken out. I didn't know it was her. It was her. I'm pretty (laughs) sure it was her. I think it was her. Wow. Yes. So there were celebrities in the audience. Um, And there there were all different types of people in the audience. They were all having a great time. And as a matter of fact, um, people who were in the audience later said that the next day their stomachs were actually sore from all the laughter. Well, they got their money's worth. They certainly got their money's worth. And there were people paying like up to $200 for a ticket. Wow. Which was like, I know, a car or something back then. I don't know. It's just insane. I I don't know. What more than a car? Yeah. No, I don't know. I, I, I mean, she was notorious, but not in the way she thought she was. Yeah, not in the way she thought she was. So the reviews were brutal, of course. She was called the diva of Din and the first lady of the sliding scale. Ouch. There were references to murder on the high seas. (laughs) There's a good pun. Yeah. And Robert Begar of the New York World Telegram (laughs) said, Madam Jenkins has perfected the art of giving zest to a written phrase by improvising it in quarter tones. Quarter tones. Either above. (laughs) Or below the original note. I just about died when I read that thinking, wow, he's got tact. He could go into public relations. Yeah. And then he (laughs) said, think of the difficulties involved in making this possible. (laughs) I mean, and, and in his review, he actually gave her credit. He said it's actually quite difficult to sing like that. And it would be. I mean... If you were trying to sing like that. Yeah. and there are Which actually, is why she's so comical because yeah. 
because I mean, you know, if you want to say muck around when you've had yeah. a few drinks and pretend that you're singing really badly out of key, you know, you can do that. But it wouldn't to, be as funny to do it the way she did it. Mm. There, there was some almost sort of it was like an unconscious comic timing <laughs> almost well do you know what i don't know how she felt about these reviews oh. but sadly florence did die about five days after her performance That's right. and it was i think the shock of yeah that the aftermath of that performance i really do i really yeah and that makes me sad i wish in a way she had because I have to give her credit again for the pursuit of her passion. And you've got to admire anyone who yeah. puts that much work into something. And it would have been nice if she had died oblivious. Do you know what? Considering how old she was and how long she's yeah. gone being oblivious, yeah. yeah, it would have been nice if she could have just ended she that She was a bit way. cruel. But, but yeah. she was justifying the laughter in the crowd as, you know, her enemies and that kind of stuff. So she did hear the laughter. Um, yeah. And I do believe she did re- read the reviews, but she probably denied it in a way anyway. She, she, she had a way of being very vengeful for anyone who thwarted um, her own idealised vision of herself. Like, for example, yes. when someone walked in on her and saw her bold, um yes because she was completely yeah. bald because of the mercury yeah. treatment and, and the woman yeah, the, the person right. who did walk in on her was really quite uh, horrified and tried to give her dignity do you know what i mean but but florence yeah. quite went after her and it seemed to me she'd go mm. after anyone who in any way shape or form ever uh clashed with that idealized version of herself with quite a viciousness a very narcissistic yeah. viciousness so I don't know. She probably died rather angry rather than sad. Yeah. 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 Most likely. Yeah. And apparently, now I don't know if this is true or not, but rumour has it that before she died, Florence said the words, I may not have sung well, but I did. And she did. She did. She did. And you have to have admiration for that. You do. And um, so let's use that in our lives and let's use our voices. <laughs> no, I don't think I'm going to inflict the, my voice on the world. Well, our, our, our metaphorical voices. <laughs> we'll, we'll, uh, we will pursue our own passions with the same absolute passion that Florence Foster Jenkins did. On that note... Ha-ha! Very, I see what you did there, Heidi. Yeah, I did a second dad joke. Becoming a habit, Heidi. Yeah, sorry. But I'm I'm fearlessly investing in my comedy. Okay, no, 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 no. And I shall buy four tickets to your show. Thank you. And I've listened to other recordings of the same joke and they're nowhere near as funny as yours, Heidi. Thank you. So that's what friends are about. Yeah.